verse 1. The prayer of Abel the prophet, according to Sikaiah. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your words. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Zion, and the Holy One from Mount Zion. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hands, and there He bowed His power. Before Him a pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. These were the everlasting waves. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses and your chariot chariots of fire, you stripped the sheep from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and died. The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threatened the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. He pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. He came like a well-winged to scatter me, rejoicing as if, to, as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail. The yield, fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. This is the word. Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see people in face-to-face. It's really great. And to all of them, it's great that you've joined us as well here to hear God's Word and to learn and be transformed from it. My name is Matt. I'm one of the student ministers here um, at Church of Nile. And let me pray before I open God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your Word is alive. The Word is transformative. And your Word causes us to be more and more like your Son. As we hear your word this morning, may we be transformed. So please, Lord, give us ears to hear and soften our hearts to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' son's name, amen. The concept of the future is a bit of an uneasy concept, isn't it? Uneasy because no one really knows 
surely he can do certain things in the present and just hope that maybe he'll have a certain outcome in the future. But, to be honest, it's just rolling the dice, just like everything else, isn't it? I think it's fair to say that the lack of control that we have over the future is what makes us feel so uneasy about it. It's why we have such sayings like, what is it at once? We can't control the future, but we can control the here and now. I've been wondering lately, would it be better to know for certainty what will happen in the future? Would that actually make things better? Or would that make things harder? Harder because all future events, as we're very well aware of these days, are the rainbows and sunshine, aren't they? Some future events are dark, scary, and they do damage in a new way. So, would knowing for certain that such a scary event is going to happen, would that be a good thing? And would what would you do with that information? Would you panic? Would you try to run for it? Or would you wait for it? Would you wait for it, not with sadness or despair, but with joy? Would you sing about it? As a church, we've been going through the book of Habakkuk together, and this is our last week of our journey. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, and he began his book with questioning God's justice, considering all the injustice and corruption around him. God then responded, saying that he will do something that Habakkuk will not believe. He will raise up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, the worst of the worst nations, to bring judgment on the Judaites, those who are remaining in the land at the moment. He'll bring judgment because of their wickedness, which has gotten so bad that God is sending Babylon, of all nations, to judge them. Does this revelation of what will happen in the future mean that God is not just? Because it seems like he's condoning the Babylonians. Not at all. In chapter 2, God said that he will judge them one day too. But Habakkuk is now in this very tricky situation of knowing a terrifying event that will happen in the future. We can't stop it. We can't change it. All we can do is wait. In our passage this morning, Habakkuk responds to his, his predicament, not by panicking or running away, but by singing a beautiful prayer, a song that is a confession of his faith in his God. But how is it possible for him to do this? Well, it's actually captured in the three sections of his song. The first section, he recognizes the future. In the second section, he is reminded past, which is why he's able to, in the third section, rest in the present. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3 as we work through together. Habakkuk chapter 3. Our passage today is this beautiful, complex, rich song of prayer with beautiful poetic imagery. We also notice a dramatic shift in Habakkuk's attitude, moving from questioning God's justice to really having a great understanding of God's justice. 
how God's coming judgment through the Babylonians fits into God's bigger picture of salvation, which is why he's actually praying for it to come. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of these years, revive it. In the midst of these years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Although for good reason, Habakkuk fears this coming judgment. He says that God will bring it sooner. He prays that God will bring it sooner rather than later. In the midst of these years, this phrase is actually a unique phrase in this book. This phrase is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it's referring to a period of time, not in the distant future, but in the very near future. Habakkuk is asking God to revive it very soon, very soon, make it known. And the it that he is referring to is God, God's action of judgment. Now, it may be just me, but I don't know if I would be praying to bring forward the invasion of our nation by one of the worst nations out there. But I don't think I would ask God, the creator of the universe, to judge us as soon as possible. I would pray for God to delay his judgment, you know, at least until the northern side of my 90th birthday. Because, you know, I have a wife and two beautiful daughters, and we have plans, big plans. So God's judgment is, well, it's, it's a bit of an inconvenience, isn't it? Why on earth would Habakkuk actually want God to bring judgment sooner rather than later? Well, actually, I think the better question is, why do we want God's judgment later rather than sooner? Well, I think it's because we have this warped understanding of God's judgment. We have this picture in our minds of judgment being nothing more than just calamity and destruction. To be honest, that is part of it, and that's true, but it's not the full picture of God's judgment. When the Bible speaks of God's judgment, it is also about cleansing. It's about putting things right. It's about restoration. It's an act of salvation. The world isn't simply destroyed, it is remade. It is restored for all of eternity. This is why the ancient Israelites longed for this day to come. They longed for God to judge the world, to cleanse it, to put it right. There's this Jewish writing that is outside the Bible called the Psalms of Solomon, where there are songs calling for the Messiah to come, cleanse the Holy Land which for them meant removing the pagan nations who were taking control over them. The only thing is, they also continued to God that they're only sinfulness. They ignored that, not realizing that that too would be judged. But like the Psalms of Solomon, Habakkuk too prays for this judgment to come sooner rather than later, not because he is blind to the corruption and the wickedness of, of the Judaites, but because he knows that the coming judgment is a part of God's bigger plan of salvation. Which is only understood by those who live by faith. Because of the coming judgment, those who live by faith can expect mercy. It was an act of God's mercy that He that He is revealing this future invasion of Babylon in order to warn and give people a chance to respect, repent and put their faith in God. 
Habakkuk is holding God's mercy and his wrath locked together, which seems very strange to us, because we prefer to separate wrath and mercy, don't we? To us, these two concepts is like having a violent storm and a beautiful spring day happening simultaneously. But for God, they're held close together. We know this because both were present at the cross. On the cross, Jesus brought the wrath that we all deserved in order to, that God be able to give mercy to the world. To those who have faith in Him. Why don't know you? But I think that kind of judgment and mercy is something worth seeing joyously. But if we are to have the same certainty as Habakkuk, what is it that gives him this certainty? Well, it's actually not found in the future, and it's not found in the present, it's actually found in the past. Habakkuk's certainty is the events of the past, which is our next section. See, this next section of the song will not, because it's, it reminds me of this maxim that I've come across, and it's used in a psychological and HL way, which is the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. See, a person's past behavior is enough that makes other people who are considering them more confident of their future behavior, which is really helpful when you're in a position where you want to make a big decision about someone, like whether they're the right person to hire for a certain job, for example. And although psychology and HR has nothing to do with this passage, this concept really captures what's happening big picture of this passage. Looking back at the verse again, in verse 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and the work of and your work, O Lord, I do fear. In the midst of this year, these years divide us. So even though Habakkuk fears it, he asks God to revive us. And the report that he's mentioning here is key to understanding the rest of the passage. The key to Habakkuk's attitude shift as well. The report he's referring to, the story is about is the Israelites and how they God rescued them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land. But it's not as simple as just the past stories that are playing here. See, the past stories are theologically framing the future judgment that is coming with the Babylonians. Now remember what I said that this passage is this beautiful complexity about. Well, even though the ESV, which is one of the best English translations, has put everything in the past tense, the way the Hebrew verbs are working here, this creates beautiful, rich movement from present to past. It's even more layered than that. Habakkuk and us as readers are witnessing God's revelation of the future that's going to come through Babylon in the present time. Okay, if put simply, as Habakkuk watches God's revelation in the future, God also reveals events in the past that make sense in the future. Now, if you're still not quite following me, do not worry because it will make sense as we get through. So the first clue to this beautiful complexity is the geographical locations highlighted in verse 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One of Mount Paran. Timon and Mount Paran are south of the Holy Land, where in the historical past that God led his people to the promised land, which is mentioned in Deuteronomy 33. And here we see this beautiful complexity of the 
song is referring to the future invasion of Babylon while framing it theologically with the past. The past story of Israel entering the promised land. See, Babylon would have attacked from the north. And these locations are southern locations. And what they are saying is something quite startling. What it's saying is that for Israel, the tables have completely turned. When Israel first journeyed to the promised land, God charged them with judging the wicked Canaanites who occupied the land. It was Israel who, brought, who were brought by God and charged with removing them from the land. This Habakkuk watches what God is revealing to him. This layer of rich poet imagery is showing that history is repeating itself. Only now, it's Israel. It's not Israel coming to judgment of the Canaanites. It's Babylon coming to judgment of the Israelites. Israel has gotten so bad that they are about to receive the judgment that they delivered from the people before them. And so that sings God's vision is taking us up to this positive perspective of the future Babylonian judgment playing out before our eyes in present time. The then is now that it's been shown in the now. We are treated to this positive demonstration of God's sovereign power of creation. The terror of the invasion close up is revealed as a demonstration of God's glory far back. Verses 3 to 4. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth, and his full was full of praise. His brightness was like light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he was veiled with power. In verse 5, the psalm takes this dramatic shift as he creates this powerful stepping motion as God's judgment is coming. The ESV is chosen plague, as the way of translating the evil word that lays behind it. But a better translation would be fiery destruction. It's this image of nothing but burned rubble being left behind as God moves through the land as Babylon's army continues. This cosmic view helps show that this judgment that is to come isn't just for Israel, but it's also a warning to the nations. The image of God measuring the earth in verse 6 is the image of God judging the earth holding the world up against the measure of what the world should be. This judgment forced other nations to shake and to shudder as they witness the power and glory of the one true God of Israel. The song shifts again from being held up from the cosmic level being brought back to the past as Habakkuk sings of the eternal mountains and the ancient paths. Then once again focusing on the references of God's power, verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan and their affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Just like earlier, these locations bring us back to God's past actions as a way of viewing the future. Cushan and Midian are references to the book of Judges, where the Cushan and the Cushans and the Midians were subdued by the Israelites. Israel was given over by God to them for eight years because they fueled anger from God against them. God heard Israel and they finally cried out to him when they finally cried out to him. God then raised up a deliverer for God's people. In Judges chapter 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he 
he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushim, the Cushim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushim. So the land had rested for 40 years. See, this past event shaped how Habakkuk and we are to view God's future judgment of Israel. Yes, the Babylonians will invade, and yes, Israel will be handed over to the Babylonians, but the Lord will hear his people's cries. He will raise up a deliverer, just like he did in Judges, just like he did in Egypt. The Babylonian invasion will be terrifying, but it won't be the last word. As God explained in chapter 2, Babylonian 2 will be judged one day. And the last word doesn't belong to them or Israel. The last word belongs to God alone. The song makes a shift again as the melody of the past fades and the familiar melody of this cosmic perspective takes us up again, witnessing the bigger picture of God's coming judgment. Last time the focus was on the land. Now it's on the water as Habakkuk sings and asks in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. Did you catch a glimmer of hope and comfort in that verse? God's coming judgment through the Babylonians is a demonstration of his anger and wrath that, that God has stored up against the Israelites. But as we know, anger and wrath are not the complete picture. This passage shows us that already and shows that already God's mercy has been held together with his cross. And now we're told that salvation too is to be incorporated into the bigger picture of God's judgment. The coming judgment is an act of salvation. God's people were warned over and over, right up to the warning that Habakkuk was commanded to issue. The God of Israel is a just God. He must judge the wicked. The Babylonians at this point are God's ordained army to bring his judgments. And they are coming. And so is the battle. And the rhythm beats of war have taken over Habakkuk's song as it is, a, as it is reminded of God, we are reminded that the God of Israel is a warrior. He is prepared for battle. His bow is uncovered. Arrows are prepared. This picture of God as a warrior may not be a very familiar one for us, but it may not sit well with us either. But our God is a mighty warrior who, is, who causes nations to rise and nations to fall. He maintains his justice over all of creation. He guards the faithful and punishes the wicked. Just as we often focus on one side of God's judgment, we also focus too much on one side of God. Yes, he is a God of love and mercy and grace, but he's also a warrior, king, ruling and reigning over creation. And like any warrior king, it is dangerous to be alongside of him. As the great thundering sounds of battle draws out more echoes of the past, we are transported back again to the past. Verse 10 brings us back to the great flood, where God flooded the world because of humanity's wickedness and corruption, when the waters were raised like hands as God's tool of judgment, wiping humanity from the face of the earth. And verse, verse 11 transports us to the book of Joshua, 
when Joshua cried out to the Lord, for the sun and the moon to stand still in the sky, so that they would defeat the Amorites. And, the, and God commanded the sun and the moon to stay still. Joshua 10, 13. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. The God of Israel owns the celestial bodies in the sun sky in order to hand one nation over to another. And now it's Israel's turn once again to be handed over. As God is leading the Babylonians in verse 12, marches through the earth with fury and threshing the nations in anger. However, God's anger and judgment are for no reason. There's a purpose behind this violent battle, which is the salvation of his people. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. See, it's not exactly clear who the anointed is, but it's very likely the anointed is a reference to Israel, God's people, themselves. And the purpose of this judgment is for their salvation. God's judgment is an act of salvation for his people. He will cause his chosen people who have turned against him to recognize him as their God again. And in time, they will cry out to their God, and he will bring them back to them. So this section concludes with this vision of, of a very violent reality of the coming judgment as the wicked are subjected to God's wrath by Babylon as they invade the crushing of the house of the wicked, the piercing of arrows, the scattering of the Judeites. Habakkuk and we watched this violent battle play out not in front of our eyes. It's not what we expected. And it doesn't sit well with us. Sure, we can put this calamity in its context, but the calamity is still coming. So what is Habakkuk going to do? That's the next section of the song, three resting in the present. As we still feel the shakes caused by the fear and violence of the last section, Habakkuk's song sits us next to him in our fear joins his. Verse 16. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Godness enters into my bones, my legs tremble within me. So it's very easy to plainly reflect on the harshness of the last session. But don't forget that woven between this, these visions of the future calamity are the past actions of God and his faithfulness to them in the past. Yes, the tables have turned. Israel is the judge and not the given one to a judgment. But the coming judgment is for the purpose of his people's salvation, just like God has done in the past. So don't forget that saying from earlier, that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. God will deliver them again because he has done for them in the past. And because God's past actions predict the future actions, that is why Habakkuk can rest in the present. Despite Habakkuk's unease, he says in verse 16, Yes, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk will wait for what God said he would do in chapter 2. 
which is the judge, the nation, and everyone. And Habakkuk will wait patiently for the king, no matter how the race of no matter what he may go without. He will take joy in God's plan. Verses 17 to 19. Then the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock they cut off from the fold, and getting no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer. He makes me tread in my highest places. Habakkuk will wait for God to do what he said he would do. But I don't know about you, but I do find it hard to see the joy in the things that Habakkuk is used to do. To be nine aspects of life that we expect and desire. And yet these examples aren't extravagant desires, are they? And to be nine are simple natural needs and desires of life can really take the joy out of life, can't it? Especially when others around us have what we want so badly. But Habakkuk's joy isn't affected by these things being taken away. Why? It's because his joy is placed above. His joy is placed in God and God's greater plan for salvation. See, all these things of the world can be denied and taken away, but the God of the universe can never be taken away from him. And seeing things from this cosmic perspective that we've seen in this passage it helps us to see this big picture of God's plan for salvation. Where one day, you will be with God in His presence for all eternity. And the hardships of this world will be like a blip in time, long forgotten. After working through this passage, I also can't help but be reminded of Jesus as He prays in the garden, knowing full well the pain of the wrath that is about to be inflicted on Him. He will be crushed and pierced for our transgressions. He will bear the full wrath of God that has been held against us. And he, like Habakkuk, is trembling in fear. As the thunder of God's judgment is meant for us, is moving toward him through Judas, the high priest, and through the Roman leader Pilate, Jesus, in that moment, prays to the Father, asking that for his wrath be passed by him. But like Habakkuk, Jesus, knowing the big cosmic picture, prays, not my will, but your will be done. And in his death, we see God's full picture of judgment, demonstrating wrath, mercy, and salvation. We are like Habakkuk too. We are awaiting the coming judgment as well. Jesus now raised from the dead, will come to judge the earth. And this judgment, too, is thundering towards us. And the question I have to ask you is, are you ready for it? Are you living as the wicked Judaites? Or are you living by faith and Habakkuk? Will the coming judgment be punishment for you? Or will it be mercy? Don't forget that there is no salvation apart from God. And here is your warning. Repent 
started to join. Join the rest of us as we wait patiently, singing with joy, as we wait for the day of trouble, and as we place our joy in the faithful God that can never be taken from us. Join us in asking God to bring that day, that day forward as soon as possible. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your word. O oh Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And God, remember mercy. And come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful imagery, the song, the poetic nature of this passage. There are many aspects that may not sit well with all of us, and we're people quietly thinking about it discussing it with friends that share faith in you. But Lord, we do pray that we will see the joy of your salvation, the joy of what you do, and the fullness of your judgment will be. That everything will be made new, that there will be no death, no fear, never tear will be wiped away. As we are reconciled to you, we spend all of eternity in your presence. Or may we sing joyfully, may we wait joyfully as we consider the greater of the picture of your plans of salvation. May we be reminded in all our times your past actions and how you act for us in the future. We pray this in the Son's name.